Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Neelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We have with us today, Sandy Middleman. Sandy has coached tennis players from 30 different countries at the USTA National, ITF, ATP, and WTA tour levels. Sandy's coaching of three USTA 18's national champions is proof of his coaching, player development, and management skills. We are happy to have him on. So without further ado, please welcome to the pod, Sandy Middleman. Sandy, thank you uh, for taking some time today and, and walking us through your very unique tennis journey. Uh, David, most importantly, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, not used to listening to my journey being read off to me. So it's actually quite interesting. Uh, sometimes a little bit uncomfortable, but nevertheless, uh, appreciate you having me, appreciate you interested in having me. And yeah, it's that it, the word of the day for that is journey. That's yes. exactly what it's been. For sure. And we're going to get into that. Um, but first, as I've asked pretty much everybody during this crazy time, um, I know you're based in Florida. How are you holding up? Okay. Are you able been, uh, have you been able to travel at all, get some stuff done? Um, zero travel. Uh, and by travel for me, that means getting in a plane. Um, I've taken a couple, like literally three, um, trips by car, um, where I've gone a couple hours and, you know, come back in the same day, uh, for some meetings. But, uh, re reality is, uh, a week ago to yesterday, we go yesterday, Saturday, I was in Tampa for pretty much the day. And that's the first time since before March that I've actually really been around people. I mean, I've been around people, like I've been around family and I've been out like in restaurants or, you know, things like everybody else, right? Going to the grocery store and getting your stuff. But that's really the first time in like a work environment yes. that I've actually been around people. And if I'm being honest with you, I wasn't a hundred percent comfortable. Yeah. It's a little strange when you're not doing, cause I don't do, I, I pretty much stay to myself and where yeah. I live and only get out. Like, like you said, when you have to, when you get out to the public with a mix of people you don't know, it, it is a little strange. It was yeah, strange would be a good word for what that was like. Cause I, you know, you don't know where people have been, who they're around. You, you respect people to like, say, you know, they're being careful, whatever it is. Right. But you just don't know. And you know, I, I did the, you know, you do the best you can to be normal when you know it's not. And you just sort of, I, I was literally just getting through, you know, getting through the day the best I could. But these people were fantastic, super nice, easy to be around for the nine hours I was with them. So it was a long day. But yeah, you know, it was pretty tiring because when you're so focused on the uncertainty of it, that's tiring. You don't even realize you're getting tired. But yeah. It's all good. No, very, very well said. I want to go into your tennis background because uh, typically the guest I've had on, we've had a lot of people that, you know, have a very good junior career. Mm -hmm. They go on, compete, have very good collegiate careers. Maybe they play the professional tour a little bit. Maybe they go right into coaching. Maybe they, they don't do anything off after college in the tennis world, and then somehow they get back into it. Yours is definitely unique. And if you can, I, I'd like you to share it. Um, with, with our listeners and just go start from the beginning. You know, how did you start? When, how did you start picking up a racket in the first place? Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you thinking it's unique. It's definitely been, uh, di been different. Um, how I started in tennis was in a very simple way. Um, my father was, and still is, um, although older and not the same level, a very good golfer. 
Um, and so my, I was doing a lot of golfing with him in the summers when I was quite young. Um, and he realized I didn't have a whole lot of patience per se for golf, or at least at that time, at least at that time when I was young. So he just sort of suggested, Hey, how about trying tennis? It was a little bit, you know, a little more running, a little more moving, a little more, you know, a little quicker, whatever, whatever he saw that he thought would benefit something he could see with the golf, which was, I had good timing. Cause I could always hit a golf ball, but playing it and patience for that was difficult for me right. when I was young. So he got me a racket, gave me a ball, put me on a garage and I never stopped. The first time I ever did it was on a, uh, I can't remember whether it was a garage or a wall, but it was about three hours. I went straight hitting the ball against the wall and he <laughs> kind of knew we had something there. kind of knew I was like sort of hooked into it. And yeah, the interesting part of that, David, is that, you know, unlike primarily most kids today i think in my experiences coaching um i didn't actually see realistically a tennis court or something organized or coaching until i was about two two and a half two years or so give or take i don't remember exactly after i first started with the rack and the ball so i didn't go to a club or do anything like that organized until that period of time so basically everything what about did, what age were you at about i was about eight and a half ish. Okay. Um, I don't remember exactly when it was, but uh, my memory serves me correct. It was about that time. And it was all, it was basically three things. It was basically hitting on a wall, hitting on a garage and ruining my parents' garage door paint. Okay. Had to be painted multiple different times. They weren't <laughs> happy. Um, the only thing that was good as I was getting better. Um, but they were, I just would, if I was a parent, I just would have stopped painting it. Just save the yeah. money. Stop painting it. You're just <laughs> going to abuse it over and over. Yeah, they, they were like, no, we got to paint this thing over. <laughs> so doing that. And then when I first started in a club setting per se, it was only ball machine, ball machine, nonstop hitting balls. And I was just into it. I would run around, you know, back in the day, load the balls up, you know, do that thing over and over and over. And yeah, that was the first two or three years. That was my. And that first. was in the upstate New York area. Yeah, that was in Rochester, New York. So that was my entrance into the uh, the tennis world, and um, yeah, so that's kind of how it kicked off. Now, now you did play some tournaments as you were growing up, never nationally or internationally. That that just wasn't even uh, really a, a thought of yours. But you did play some tournaments locally. Yeah, I played. Yeah, it's a good point you bring up. I played a lot of tournaments, like a lot of kids um, <laughs> locally. Um, you know, had some success in the local sort of spec, you know, uh, sector like Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse, you know, the, the Eastern New York, as we called it back in the day, way back in the day. Very um, good player um, from there, by the way, Jimmy Arias. Yeah, absolutely. No, no Jimmy's brother, uh, Kevin. Well, um, but yeah, so did that. But to, to your point, Number one, I, it was never like in my head, like a lot of kids, a lot of players say now, oh, when I was first started, I was dreaming of being the best or I never even thought, hmm, it'd be, nice, be interesting to go play internationally or, you know, or nationally. And one interesting note, which is, I think, different today from what I know, and I'm not in New York, so I don't know this to be a, the fact, is that when I was growing up in Rochester, New York, the only tournaments you could play that would give you points to give you in a position, put you in a position to actually go to nationals or if you went to like Long Island and New York city. And the problem with doing that, well, was three parts. Number one, weather was brutal to drive through in the winter. 
you know, in normal conditions, it was six plus hours. With the winter, it could turn into eight. Um, two is they started usually Friday at about four o'clock play. That would mean I would have to miss like a day and a half of school. Um, so there was just a lot of factors. So I never did that. Um, so yeah, the, the whole bigger world of tennis was never. And the other thing too, which maybe is part of the reason why my mind works in coaching the way it does now, I'm not sure, is that I never had any coach coming to me and saying, hey, you can, you know, you can go do this or you've got the you know, sort of skill set, right? If we work to go do that. So honestly, I was just playing because I loved it. And that's, I just wanted, and I just wanted so more good. of it. That, and that's so pure. That that's the reason why kids pick up a racket. So so definitely respect that. Now going to, um, on to college again. You really never thought of, of maybe playing in college. You did go to Ferris State, which by the way, Ferris State has a good um, PTM professional yep. tennis management program. It's one of a few universities out there. If the listeners are looking at really getting <laughs> into the tennis industry, go yeah. take a look at the schools that have these professional tennis management programs fairs a few others um they're trying to get more schools to do it because um you know we want to get people young professionals into the industry mm. so you did there you transferred them to a small school in in south florida and you were kind of trying to, to find yourself again you didn't know tennis was going to be your 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 whole career walk us through that a little bit yeah so it was um quite an interesting period of time. Um, as you said, I, I didn't like, I wasn't thinking like from a freshman in high school or something, I want to go play for the, you know, the Stanford's or the Florida's or the whatever, you know, whatever school it was of the world. Um, be honest with you, I wasn't even sure I wanted to go to school. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. The only thing, there was only two things I knew when I was like in school in that time period. One is I knew how to hit a ball well. Two is I was super creative. So how those two things would inevitably create something other than what I was doing, <clears throat> I wasn't sure. But um, so what happened, how I ended up at Fair State was actually kind of simple. Um, because I never was really had that, you know, oh, I'm going to be that kid at that school, right? That's the thing. Got to be about junior year-ish, right? And that's the talk, right? Where are you going to college? And so... Uh, through some research, my family found um, Fair State with the professional tennis management program. And they're like, oh, well, you can go here, right? You can study the industry. You can study how it works. They had some idea I'd probably spend my life in it in some capacity, how nobody really knew. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was off to Fair State. Um, good beginning experience there. My only issue with it, honestly, and why I left was the idea of being in weather worse than the weather I grew up in in Rochester uh, suddenly became not so exciting, if you know what I mean. Um, uh, I know you're Chicago laughing. Guy here. I hear you. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I, I tried my best in the year I was there to sort of like look past that, right? Like, oh, this weather is like beyond bad, you know, all that stuff. But you know what? It was time to make a decision and I just wasn't, you know, happy being in it. So they basically, my family basically said, if you want to leave and you want to go to warmer weather, you, you do all the work to figure it out and then we'll make it, you know, we'll organize it happening. So I did some research in South Florida because family's down here and, you know, all that stuff. So I did that. And next thing I knew, I was at uh, Palm Beach uh, Junior College. 
Um, you know, but I, again, it was this thing where I was still not quite certain on the direction. Um, am I all in playing? Am I, you know, all engaged? And then I had some family things going on. So long story short, how the career actually started. Um, I just, I left school. Um, and yeah, I didn't go back. And then I was in sort of deeper search mode per se. So yeah, that's, um, that's kind of how I ended up Fair State, then Palm Beach, um, and then still in a bit of search mode. And, you know, that's, that takes us in the conversation to, if I, my memory serves me correctly, it's a really long time ago, um, almost 89, 1989, okay. about that period of time. And, and in 1989, a little bit after that, you had the opportunity to meet someone that uh, is arguably the most influential person in the tennis world, and that's Nick Boletari. Mm -hmm. And um, with that, I'll let you kind of take the story and go with that, because that really kind of sets you on, a, uh, on the path of where you've developed and what, you know, currently you're still involved in the tennis world now. Yeah, no, it's, you couldn't have said it any better. So. Yeah, and um, Nick, Nick became, a, you know, a, I don't know, a, a one of the top couple most influential people in my sort of career development. Actually, realistically, actually gave me one. If I actually want to sort of sum it up, he sort of gave me an opportunity to have a career where I wasn't really sure where one was going. Um, and how that all started with Nick is um, in the – end of 90 um near december i don't remember exactly when it was i was literally in figured out mode is it go back to school is it am i good enough to start playing how does that work you know what do i want to do where do i you know the whole there was like many questions in my head and zero answers <laughs> literally none so um Fortunately for me, very fortunately for me, and I'll always be thankful and grateful for this, a very good family friend, their close friend was Murph Klauber. And Murph Klauber, for anybody who listens into this or watches this, um, was, uh, and I, I don't remember exactly whether I'm 100% accurate, so don't quote me on this, but he was, this is a long time ago, but Murph was, I believe, either the co-owner or the owner of the colony. Okay. okay. That's, so that's Murph great. is somebody that knew Nick really well, gave Nick an opportunity from the stories I remember. And uh, Nick owed Murph a favor. And I became the favor. So uh, December of 1990, I got a call from Nick. It, honestly, it was literally no more than five minutes. Maybe, you know, I mean, obviously, it's a long time ago. So maybe it was seven or something, eight, but it was literally like that quick. And just asked me a couple questions, gave him a couple answers, um, said, pack your bags and come on down to Florida and I'll take care, you know, I'll take care of you. So I basically arrived in, arrived at Nick's Academy. Well, it was Nick Voltaire Tennis Academy then, now IMG, as everybody knows. That was uh, January 12th, 91. Remember the, remember the day and the minute I met him like it was, you know, 20 minutes ago. That's how much it sticks in my head and um, brought me on the court. Um, uh, met him, Gabe Paramelio, who now has been owning and running Club Med Academies in Port St. Lucie. Um, Chip Brooks, uh, 
who was working with me with uh, Gabe and um, uh, Nick and yeah, and got on the court with Nick. I don't know. I was on the court maybe seven, 10 minutes, not long. Turned to me and said, um, you know, want to want to talk to your father and got on the phone, talked to my father and shared a few thoughts with him and that changed everything. So I stayed there and um, yeah. And the idea, the plan was to develop the game. Um, Nick thought I had a lot of potential. Um, just realized I didn't have a lot of development background per se. Right. Um, a lot of work behind me per se The as we like to call it in the coaching business, the hard yards per right, se. Right. right. right? Um, but just knew that if I had that in me, if somebody put that in me and gave me that, then something good could come out of it. So started along that path as the player and then three months in in march of 91 i went to uh what was then yugoslavia uh now is obviously croatia serbia and the six republics six countries um and yeah had an unfortunate accident that changed the course of everything i literally um and I can remember this like it was yesterday too, which is pretty scary. But I, I was practicing with somebody who I was traveling with um, and literally ran for a drop shot and saw this, um, you know how in Europe they have like all the big water hoses, right? Yeah, yeah. Not like here where they have underground watering in a lot of clubs. So water hose, like looking like just in big circles, right? Had to make a split second decision. Do I try to stop and avoid it or try, try to jump over it? So I, in my mind, I just, you know, a lot of momentum, tried to jump over it, came down and heard a crack. So yeah, broke the ankle um, completely. And that was the end of the playing. And the coaching career began. And, that, and the coaching career was like launched before I even knew what one was supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, right? That's crazy. But, but I'm, I'm you stayed in. Um, no longer on the, on the playing track, but on the coaching track. And you had the opportunity to work with um, some unbelievable players. You went on tour with players. I mean, was that something that you, you hadn't even dreamt of doing stuff like that? It just kind of happened, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I've said this to a lot of people over the years when they ask me what starting my coaching career, like at Knicks or NBTA was like, and it's really simple. I was like on a, I was like on a rocket ship in a place I didn't have any understanding of. There's only two things I knew when I started, when I got, when I took the position, right? And I started doing the coaching. There's only two things I knew. The rest of it, I had no clue what was going on around me. I was just trying to go day to day and try to figure out what was happening, right? Number one, I was around a lot of really good players. Yes, you were. That was like number one, you know, all ages. Like, you know, you know from, from eight years old till like pro level, right? So I was around a lot of really good players, but I was also in the middle of what I called a vacuum of intense energy, a vacuum from, of intense energy. So literally from, you know, from 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. all the way to like 8 p.m. at night, there was nothing but energy around you, right? So whether it was the coaches or the trainers or the parents or the, or obviously the kids and the players and, you know, everything going around, around was nonstop energy. And so you've got two, uh, you got two options as I see it at that time. Cause literally I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew I had a basket, I had a racket and I had a balls in the court. 
but the rest of it was completely unknown territory and unfamiliar. So the two things I, real, I realized early, forget about what I think I know and try to focus on what I believe I don't. That was the first thing. And the second thing that was maybe more important than that for me was act like, well, not act like, be like, behave like you're trying to, I don't know, uh, try to outwork people, right? Because whether I knew something about coaching, had no experience, you know, all, all those different things, which were all true. I knew nothing about coaching and I had no experience. You can't fake that. That, that sure. comes with time, right? But what you can do, I learned quickly, is you can just come with energy, bring the best attitude, right? Those things. same things, ironically, you tell players, right? Come with energy, bring your best attitude, and be willing to try to learn things like, you know, like understand things on the fly the best you can from, from not only the players, but also like all the coaches like around you that have been there a long time. And so that's all I did for like basically almost three to three years. I hope kids listen to this because what Sandy's just talking about, this isn't just tennis skills. These are life skills that, you know, obviously his vehicle was tennis, but what, what Sandy just talked about is are skills that you can take in any industry. Um, it's so important. And, and thank you for sharing that. Um, again, I mean, you, you got to travel around the world. You've coached some, um, with some incredible players. And I'll give you the chance to name a few of those. Um, why don't you go ahead now and just name a couple of players just so the listeners want to know. And this is, if he forgets one or two, it's not because they're not important to him. This is just off the fly right now. So just to give the listeners some context on who are some of the, the players and, and places that, you, that you've taken these people. Yeah. So uh, first I want to preface with what I preface, what I'm going to say with um, I'm not, I can't speak for other coaches, nor would I ever want anybody to try to speak for me. But I'm not the kind of guy I don't I don't really like using a lot of names of people because it's like, in a way for me, it's always been like, you know, sort of, you know, I put people in, you know, promo material and things like that. But talking about specific people, I don't really like to get into that. But what I will do is share a couple of experiences that really shaped how I think as a coach and how I see just the sport in terms of development and like the pathway. Right. So. One experience I had um, was with a girl, I'll share her name, great girl. Uh, she's no longer playing. I mean, actually, she's a mom now, recently, so congrats to her. Um, she's from Massachusetts. I was living in Boston for seven years. And uh, one experience I had with her was she was overlooked by a lot of people because she was maybe five foot two, maybe. That was on a good day uh, with orthotics. Ha ha, a little good humor for you. Okay, but she was short. Um, but she was maybe overlooked by people. And the two things I saw in her when I first met her, which is why I loved working with her, uh, one of the best experiences I've had in my 30 years, is she just had this unbelievable heart like of a lion, right? I could tell her to be at a court at 4 a.m. and she's going to be there at 345. Right. That's just how she was built. And so it showed when she played, like whatever I would say to her to do, or, Hey, these are our, these are our focuses for this match. Right. She was all in. 
Like there was, I didn't have to go up or go to the side and sit there and watch and be like, Oh, I hope she'll do this. Right. I knew she would. I knew she would. I knew she was all in. So one experience I had with her was in, in 2006. And can you provide the name of this place? Yeah, sure. It's Mary Gambali. Mary Gambali. So in 2006, Mary's from Bill Ricca, Massachusetts. Great girl, great family. 2006, uh, we were working together and the, the decision, we had to make a decision. The decision was she was playing circuit events, she was moving up, she was doing well. She was about two, 200-ish, making progress. But she was playing at a level, like when we were practice, she was playing at a level where I didn't see top 50 being a stretch for her. Even the way she played with the, she had unbelievable speed. Wasn't anybody in the country faster than her. I mean, she could really move, right? And she was underrated as far as like her overall skill set. Okay. But we had a decision to make. Do we go to 18 hard courts or don't we? And I only saw one reason to go. I saw no other reason to be there. Go to 18 hard courts at her level made no sense to me. Um, didn't make sense financially, didn't make sense functionally, developmentally. The only reason to go, get the wild card for the U.S. Right. Open. That's for, it. The, for the listeners that don't know, and a lot of people do, if you win Kalamazoo, well, I said Kalamazoo, I'm used to the boys. If you win right. the USTA 18, girls is in San Diego. If you win that, you get a wild card into the main draw at the U.S. Open. Right. And unfortunately for me, I wasn't sure that she would be offered it if she didn't win it. Okay. Even though I knew she was beyond deserving of it, right. what she had done, what, who she was, what all that stuff. Right. But so the security in the conversation was let's go and let's win it. Wasn't let's go and see what happens. Let's go and let's win it. Right. So we get there and two other girls that were there that I think were the first two seeds. Uh, I think, I don't remember exactly what, who was first or second at the time. It's a long time ago. Vanya King, very successful WTA doubles career, very good player. And Alexa Glatch, um, nearly made it to the top 100 a couple times, uh, singles, but had a couple of unfortunate uh, injuries and accidents. And so she's still playing, but she's been trying to work her way. But very good player, super talented, a lot of skills. So when we got to the site and we were practicing, and I knew Mary was a bit nervous because the only reason to be there was to win the whole thing, right, Right. for the wild card. So I just sat her down the first night and I just said, listen, there's nobody here that can run more than you. And there's nobody here that's mentally tougher than you. So it's a real simple equation as far as I'm concerned. Whatever you do, you don't miss. And whatever you do, you start running where people know the only way they're going to be able to get past you is if you have the worst day or they're prepared to suffer like they're not willing to. It was very simple. That was our conversation. We had that. In the, little, uh, in the little breakfast lo- of the lobby at the hotel. That's the conversation we had. It was no more than 10 minutes. I said, are you all in? Are you ready to go do this? Because every day it's the same. I'm mm-hmm. not changing tactics. I'm not changing strategy. That's it daily. And she went out and she did it. And so won the tournament, beat Glatch in the final, got the, got the US Open. And then ironically on the plane home, this is funny, uh, we got a call from the USTA got the message when we got off saying they wanted to offer a wild card for the pilot pen in New Haven as well to the qualities. She ended up playing Stoser, who everybody mm-hmm. knows what Stoser did. 
Uh, really good match. Uh, lost in two sets, but they were they were fairly tight, fairly competitive. So yeah, so just uh, that was one unbelievable experience that I will never forget. Right. Um, and then um, you know there was there, there's been experiences like through the years where another one that stands out is 2015. I was working with a Serbian girl named Bojana Jovanovski who has since retired as well, ironically, in the last couple of years. And also she was top 32 at one time. Um, she, uh, she was the youngest player in the top 100 when she was 17, which is very good. Um, and we were working together. And first, nobody could figure out how I was working with a Serbian player. That was the one thing that was interesting. I have a lot of Croatian and Serbian friends. Um, but we were working together and a quick story about that. Cause honestly, these stories take forever to tell, but this story. Yeah. Well, we'll start. I mean, we could talk forever. We'll talk yeah. this one. And then I want well, to bring yeah. to, to present. Sure. Day. Absolutely. I knew I was going to say that because these stories can take a long time, but I'll, I'll sure. try to make this one quick. So um, anybody who was in Europe that, uh, that year in 2015 will remember this. We were in Madrid at Mutua. Uh, she lost. So next plan was Rome. Ironically, Rome, somebody, somebody started a fire at the Rome airport that year. Okay. So there's this unbelievable long story for how everybody that was in Madrid, all the players, right, all the families, all the coaches, everybody had to get to Rome. Long story short, it was a disaster trying to get to Rome. We got to Rome. And in the moment, I mean, literally the first morning, like the first practice, the first morning, um, she literally, if I parked a school bus in the court, she wouldn't have hit it. Okay. It was that bad. And not, she wasn't that, but she just couldn't do anything. She couldn't focus. She had no energy. It was brutal getting there. Okay. She was way out of it. Point was the following. In a moment where I expected the least, I had one of the greatest experiences I've had in 30 years. First round qualities, five, one, 40, 15 down turned to her now husband, but then uh, boyfriend and trainer and, and just looked at him. He didn't speak English very well. So I looked at him and we just had a look and I like, okay, we're probably one second from being on the way elsewhere. Huh. Let's just see what happens. Turned around wins seven, six in the third. <laughs> Next round, Nicolescu, crazy story. I told her she was gonna have to suffer to win the match because of how Nicolescu played. She was prepared to listen. And I told her the only thing she needed was mental toughness and great footwork. She did it. She won. But it was a crazy story, which I can get more into. We could talk for an hour about that story. But she won that. First round, beat Garcia. Everybody knows what Garcia has done in her career. Second round, beat Keys. And then finally lost, uh, finally lost a third round, or I think it was the 16s of the main, uh, to Sharapova in a pretty good match. I think it was like three and four or two and four, but it was, a, but it was a competitive match. Um, so yeah. So, but just a place I never thought I'd be in that week was on center court against Maria. Right. In for Otalco because of the way it started. And it was unbelievable. And that's so. why, that's why, again, you never give up and, and tennis it's kind of like golf. There's no, there's no clock. Right. And it's the toughest thing. You, the match is not over until mm. the winner wins that final point. And it's so mentally hard. It's hard to close. And that's why I think tennis is such a beautiful and brutal sport, mm. but um, that's definitely gives it uniqueness and, and just hang in there long enough. Uh, again, we can talk for hours, especially with all the years and experiences you've had. Um, 
I mean, you have so many cool experiences. I want to bring it closer now to, to current day because right now you're, you've always done it, but I think your soul, your, your main sole focus now is more on just player assessment um, and coaching. Again, I don't know how much really you've been traveling as of late. No one's really been traveling mm. much, but talk a little bit about what you're looking at doing um, today. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up, and I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, like you said, nobody's been traveling. Uh, I certainly haven't. I've literally made, like, one road trip by car in, like, whatever, since before March. Right. So I haven't been anywhere. So um, I realized that I was going to have to sort of pivot, per se, um, and figure things out. So one of the things I started doing um, – not in March, but maybe like in April, once I realized everything was gone for a while and right. didn't know what that was going to look like is I started doing a lot of player assessments. I'd always done them, but maybe they were just, it wasn't like a specific focus and it wasn't in the same way. And what so, levels are we talking about? Oh gosh, David, it could be, um, I literally just did a player assessment via video analysis for a family in California and their son is seven. Okay. So I've done it from a, like a, that young, to any, anybody, like it could be a professional player. Right. Um, so it's pretty much the gamut. Um, and I do it via video analysis. And, and one of the reasons why I started to do it like, I was, like I've been doing it, and one of the reasons why I think there's value in doing it is because I'm a big believer as a coach, I always have been, in long-term vision. I've never understood how, again, players, parents just go from – hour to hour, lesson to lesson. By the way, I don't like the word lesson. I'll just share that openly. I, I never use that word with anybody I work with. I always use the word training or practice. Lesson's not in my vocabulary. And there's a reason for it, and I can get into it later. But anyway, so they can go hour to hour. But I never really feel like they're always, they're always concerned about getting to the tournament, getting results, getting ranking. And I'm always like, you're missing the whole point when you're young or you're doing this, none of that matters. What matters is, do you have a long-term plan? What does that plan look like? How long is it, right? And are you developing in all aspects of the game? Because the, the reality is, is when you get to a certain level, and you know this, right? When you get to a certain level, now let's just say this, everybody can run. Some do, it, some do it faster and better than others, but everybody can run, right? And honestly, everybody can hit forehands and backhands and serves. Yep. Some, are more, some are more technically pretty and aesthetically pleasing when they're doing it. But the truth is, is those aren't the variables that provide you the opportunity to be competitively viable and successful in your tournament world, okay? Whether it's high school, college, professional, whatever, you know, juniors, whatever it is, those aren't the aspects that allow that to happen. So when I do player assessments, I've created what I think is a unique process. It's called will to skill. So their technical side is the last thing I pay attention to and care about because everybody looks differently doing it, right? So I do a lot of it now, today, through video analysis because there's not really a lot of other option. Um, I would do it on the court, but it's obviously the way it is. So I do a lot of it through video analysis. And usually when I do one, it takes me on average, um, I deliver a very detailed assessment on email to the families. And I offer them like a Zoom call such as this or this structure just to go through it, answer any questions they might have, um, share the information maybe in a way they're not understanding it, 
the way I've um, sort of spaced it out and articulated it. But uh, what I found is great result in doing it. The parents really appreciate the detail. The, the kids really appreciate the insight and detail. And on average, it takes me about four to five hours to do one. It takes me a long time because, well, first of all, they're not sending me long videos. They're sending me short clips. And, but I have to, I look at them over and over and over and over. Um, and what I found is that there's usually long lasting relationships with the families because they like the different set of eyes and they like the process by which I do it because I'm focused from the top down, not the bottom up. That's interesting. Now, if, if people are interested in contacting you to do this, what's the best way to go about reaching you? Well, the simplest way without uh, trying to lay it all out, like in this particular call is my website, which is middlemantennis.com. Very simple. All my contact details, email, phone number. Um, and if anybody, uh, if anybody would attest to that works with me or that knows me, uh, you never have to worry about getting a response from me. You reach out to me, you always get a response. And then what I always offer parents is a 20 minute free consult. If they don't know me or they're interested to understand what I do and why I do it and how it can impact and help their, you know, their son or daughter or kids, then happy to provide 20 minutes and, uh, and then let them make a decision for themselves. Sandy, this, this is great. I mean, you have a world of experience. We can, we can talk all day uh, about some of the things that you went through. And I want to thank you for, for sharing um, your journey with us. And it's just crazy to me that February of 2020, we were both in Delray <laughs> at one of the very last events that occurred. I think the following week was Acapulco. Then after that, people right. went to Indian Wells. Um, then everything got shut down. That February of 2020 um, seems like 10 years ago. It and it was interesting that, you know, we were both at that event together and God willing, God willing, <laughs> we'll get through this and, and we'll be together again at the 2021 Delray Beach Open because it's something that um, for those that are in the area or looking to, if they live in a cold climate and looking to get away again, hoping the conditions are, are, are better, um, go check out that tournament because it's an ATP 250 event. It's right off Atlantic Avenue. Um, it's such a great street where you can go in the facility. Then you go, you leave the facility and there's restaurants and places to go shopping right outside. I love the event. I will talk and publicize that event. Um, so the, till the day uh, it no longer is, or I no longer is. Um, <laughs> there you go. Hopefully those both don't happen anytime soon in the future. Exactly. So um, if you guys have the opportunity to go to that event, it, it is a great event to go see. And, and Sandy, again, uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time. This was a lot of fun. David, most importantly, uh, I agree with you. Hopefully in 2021, uh, February, uh, we'll connect at that event. But yeah, listen, most importantly, thank you so much for having me on, uh, being interested in my journey, uh, sharing it with your, you know, your viewers slash listeners. And um, yeah, I appreciate, by the way, patience too, with the timing of it and me actually asking you for Sunday versus Saturday. Um, so thank you very much for accommodating and being flexible with that. And yeah, I, it was, it's been great. And yeah, we'd love to do it again sometime if it works for you. And, uh, you know, hope everybody listens, enjoys it, and gets, you know, gets something out of it. For sure. Thanks so much, Sandy. Looking forward to keeping in touch. Sounds good, Dave. Take care. Have a great weekend. Thank you.